Joining me on the show today is Hugh Fraser. We talk about his work on Hercule Poirot, as well as his new novel, Harm, which is available off the Amazon store as an ebook and as a paperback. All that and more, plus a review of Marvel's new exciting film, Ant-Man. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to Benjamin May McKay's Talk To Me. I'm your host, Benjamin, and as I said, joining me on the show today is Hugh Fraser. Now, Hugh is probably most well-known for his role as Captain Hastings in Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot, but he has now become a novelist. And we chat about his new novel, Harm, as well as some of his more well-known acting work. Here's my chat with Hugh Fraser. Enjoy. Welcome to the show and thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure to speak to you, Benjamin. Thank you for inviting me. My absolute pleasure. Now, you started out in acting and now you've moved to writing, but at what point in your life did you know that you wanted to pursue a career in the arts? Well, I think it was when I was at school. Um, I enjoyed, you know, putting on plays and being part of um, uh, the, 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 the drama activities at school, really. And um, it was I was never particularly good academically. Um, I was always lazy as far as uh, schoolwork was concerned. And when I failed four subjects at A-level... Um, which is the last exam, you know, before you go to university. Mm. Um, uh, it was pretty clear I wasn't going anywhere uh, other than drama school, really, uh, which I fortunately got into. And so I really went from school to drama school, where I continued to enjoy acting, uh, because that's basically all you do at drama school. Mm, it is. Now, would you be able to talk us through your career journey from that moment on? Well, yeah, I, I went to work in regional theatre. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, I went to work in in what we call repertory theatre um, uh, to work as an assistant stage manager uh, stroke actor. In other words, working very long hours, you know, changing the set uh, every couple of weeks and uh, working on stage management or on the prompt copy uh, and also playing, you know, small parts. You play the waiter, you play the footman or whatever, the messenger. Um, and it was a way of getting started and building up experience. Um, and from there I moved on into the to, towards the later 60s when uh, the fringe was beginning to happen in London. Um, companies like uh, the Arts Lab um, and the Freehold and the Pip Simmons Group were starting. And I, I went to Edinburgh to join Max Stafford Clark's company called the Travis Workshop Company, where we did um, much more experimental work, you know, that, that involving movement and, and <clears throat> music and uh, things like that. And from there, I then did uh, a few plays at the Royal Court Theatre in London, um, one of which was... Um, uh, about a rock band, it's called Teeth and Smiles by David Hare. And prior to that, I had worked, you know, as a, as a bass player as well, um, and guitar player <clears throat> on the side kind of thing, you know, as well as acting. Mm. Um, and so, and I played a, um, a rock musician in that play, which was successfully transferred to the West End, and that led to more work. And then um, David Hare asked me to be in a television play called Licking Hitler, which was about a wartime propaganda unit. And I went from having long, curly hair to having a very short back and side haircut and uh, played this very sort of tight-lipped, um, uh, I was going to say something else, but tight-lipped uh, uh, army officer in that, and that was a successful television play. And then I uh, played... Uh, um, Anthony Eden in um, a television series called Edward and Mrs. Simpson. 
And that kind of led me into playing more straight parts as opposed to rock and rollers. And uh, it just kind of went on from there, really. Mm, and it's been, I mean, a fantastic career. You've got Poirot and uh, Sharp. There's been some quite fantastic series you've done. Yeah, I've been very lucky indeed. Um, and, uh, yeah, well, Poirot and Sharp, two very contrasting characters, um, you know, Hastings, the, the sidekick, the, the English gent, you know, quite reserved. Um, <clears throat> and the Duke of Wellington, very much more uh, outgoing character, very, you know, brash kind of um, authoritarian uh, leader. Uh, yeah, two contrasting characters. Mm. Now, you did spend many years acting, and we'll talk about that later. But when did you first decide you wanted to write a novel? Well, um, I started, I wrote a couple of plays about 20 years ago, um, during, in fact, during a break from the series, uh, between two series of Poirot. And um, uh, I had a certain, they, they, uh, certain interest in them. One of them was optioned by West End Management, and it never went on in the end because uh, the leading actor who was going to do it changed his mind. Um, so, and I also wrote a radio series which got considered but not quite put on. So I was in this sort of almost but not quite situation as a, as a writer. And um, <clears throat> then I just decided I'd have a crack at a, at a full-length novel and uh, went for the kind of crime genre because I've, um, I've always enjoyed uh, the, particularly the American crime writers like Elmore Leonard and James Elroy and uh, Lee Child, although he's English, of course, but his Jack Reacher books are set in the U.S. and Jack Reacher's a, an American character. Um, so I just thought I'd uh, try and write the kind of book that I enjoy reading myself. Mm, well, that's fantastic. It's also the kind of book that I enjoy reading, so I was uh, very happy to read that one. Oh, good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I did. Now, for a first-time novel author, how did you begin the writing process? Well, um, <clears throat> I, I did a course, which is a kind of introduction to writing, uh, by the run by The Guardian and the University of East Anglia. This was uh, kind of one evening a week for about three or four months, and... Um, we did various writing exercises during that, and, and actually I had started this book prior to that, and I showed the, the first sort of three or four pages to um, the tutor on the course, uh, a novelist called Bernadine Everisto, who um, said she thought, you know, it was, it was worth pursuing. She liked it, thought it was worth pursuing, encouraged me to do so, so I did. And um, I did a, <clears throat> completed a first draft, and uh, then you know, just carried on working on it until I finished it. Mm. So from that initials as concept or draft, did the novel change much between then and the finished book? It did, it did, yes. I mean, I had an agent who had various ideas about it um, and also friends, you know, would read it um, <clears throat> and, um, you know, make suggestions, some of which I'd take on board and some not. And then, you know, you know, you maybe write a draft and then, leave it for a few months or a couple of months, you know, and then read it again. You think, oh, hang on, I know what I should do there, and that maybe doesn't work as well as it might. And, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of a work in progress. Mm. So you mentioned leaving it for a few months and getting lots of people to have a look at it. So how long has it taken for you to make this novel available? Um, I suppose I probably started it just over two years ago. Oh, wow. Um, so it's, it's been just over two years been a very long process but has it been enjoyable having it going that long so yeah yeah i enjoy i enjoy writing I, I i work you know regular hours um and i enjoy that kind of regularity 
Um, and it's very easy, of course, to fit in with, you know, bits of acting work or whatever. You know, you're your own boss. So if you say, okay, I'm going to take a week off, uh, you, you can do that, obviously. Um, so it's very good from that point of view. Mm, so working regular hours, I mean, as an actor, it's not something you get to do very often. Did that, I suppose, change your lifestyle or shake things up a bit for you? Um, not really, no. I mean, it, it means you spend more time at home uh, or, you know, wherever you choose to write. So it's... it's uh, it's it's more regular in that sense than than working as an actor or not working as an actor, <laughs> whichever the case may be. Now, one of the things I, I love about Harm is the fact you've got a female lead character. How did you go about about developing her? <laughs> I really don't know. I mean, um, it it I've always been uh, I've always been a collector of the f- photographs of um, Bert Hardy and Roger Main, who photographed. Uh, London in the in well, all over the country, in fact, in uh, the forties and fifties, nineteen forties and fifties, uh, and photographed you know the slum areas and the street street life of that period, and um, there are you know teddy boys and teddy girls of that time in the, in in this country, and um, I also lived in in Notting Hill area. I've always lived in Notting Hill area, um, so I remember you know in fact as a, when I was at drama school, I lived in um, in a very run down part of. Notting Hill, um, where, where the backstory of the character is set, you know, where, where Rena Walker, the, the main character, comes from, and where the mm. book, you know, uh, indica- deals with her backstory. Um, so, you know, it was kind of familiar to me from my own experience. Um, but as far as the female side of it, I, I really don't know. I mean, I started the, um, the, you know, the first chapter is set in the, hotel, in, the, in the hotel in Mexico. And she just seemed to kind of appear of her own accord in that while I was writing that chapter. And I just kind of went with it. Oh, well, that's, you know, inspiration strikes. <laughs> yes. Now, uh, would you like to give our listeners a brief summary of the novel? Well, it's about this character called Rena Walker, who is a female contract killer. And we meet her, as we were just saying, in, in Mexico, where she's on an assignment, which uh, goes pear-shaped and goes wrong, and she gets into a lot of trouble and has to uh, deal with Mexican drug bosses and DEA agents and all that kind of adventure. And that's one kind of strand of the book. And the other strand is uh, her backstory, uh, as again, we were just saying, in the slums of Notting Hill in the 1950s, where she's 15 years old, and um, <clears throat> a local... Uh, a local villain, a local criminal, uh, commits an act of violence on her younger sister, who she's kind of looking after, um, and Rena takes revenge uh, on this guy and uh, kills him. And she then gets involved in the whole kind of criminal underworld of that of that neighbourhood um, into a kind of situation she can't get out of. And you see, we see how she develops into becoming a professional killer. Mm-hmm. So there are those two strands in alternating chapters through the book, um, which kind of come together at the end. Very good summary. Now, one of the things I did love about the book was the, the backstory, but especially how you managed to, I suppose, splice the chapters in, in, intermittently. You know, you had a chapter of the current and then the past. Why did you decide to style it like that? Well, again, it, 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 it wasn't a conscious decision. You know, I didn't sit down and make a plan and, and write to it. It just kind of came about, really. Um, I think I'd probably written some of the first chapter, the, the set in Mexico, 
you know, as a kind of doodle, you know, maybe, uh, and 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 also um, had written the first chapter, you know, the, the, a bit of the backstory as a kind of uh, not exactly an exercise, but just sort of, you know, like as you as you might run something up the flagpole and then put it on one side, you know, and maybe pick it up later and think, oh, maybe that could develop into something, you know. It was that kind of a process. It, it was never it never a conscious decision to 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 construct the book in that way. Mm, all right. Now, do you think having a pre-established name as an actor will make it a bit easier to sell the novel? I've I've really no idea, Benjamin. Um, I, I'm uh, I, I'm just going to take it as it comes. You know, if it sells, it sells. If it doesn't, it doesn't. You know, I'm just hopeful that you know people will enjoy it as you have, um, and uh, just see what happens. Mm, well, fingers crossed. <laughs> Now, I mean, something else that you've done in your career is narrate audiobooks, especially Agatha Christie ones. Have you considered making an audiobook version of this novel? Well, yes, it, it's it's a possibility. Um, obviously, it would be a, a female reader who would um, who would do it. I think. Um, it, it, yes, I, it, I think it would it would probably lend itself quite well because it has a lot of characters. Um, but I would have thought. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think a female reader or a male reader would be right for it? I think, I mean, you could obviously do it either way, but I think having it read by the author would provide that bit of authenticity. And I mean, you, you know, you're experienced in that. And I mean, that the males in her life are all quite threatening characters, so it does give the male reader something to work with, or even a male and a female reader something different. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, in fact, I've been invited to a literary festival <clears throat> and... Um, <clears throat> And uh, a, a friend of mine, Pandora Clifford, has agreed to come along and read Rena. You know, we thought we'd do a couple of scenes with Rena and, and male characters, and I could take the male characters and she could read Rena. So that, that is a possibility to actually... I don't know of an audio book where there's more than, there's more than one voice. That's an interesting idea. I, I believe there, is, there was um, Breaking Dawn, the Twilight novel, was done with two, a male and a female reader. Yeah, really? that, so I mean, it's been done before. I believe Audible did that um, quite a while ago. So there's an idea for you. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, Harm is being released on July 1st as an ebook. What ebook platforms will it be available on? Um, well, basically Amazon. Um, it's also it'll also be available as a paperback from Amazon as well. Um, and I've, I'm not very up on the technicalities, but I think if you have, uh, you know, you you can also download it uh, onto a laptop or um, you know uh, an Apple product, um, provided you download the Kindle app from uh, the Kindle application. Um, then you, then you can download it onto any kind of um, any kind of device. I think. Wonderful. And that's available worldwide on the same day? Yes, absolutely. Just, you know, at the Amazon website or the Kindle store, uh, whichever. I'll put a link to that in the show notes so people can click straight onto it. That would be great. Thank you. Now, which do you think is more difficult, acting or writing? <laughs> I, I think it depends entirely on... I mean, you, you'll know this as an actor on what it is you're required to act, uh, and presumably, I mean, I'm not experienced as a writer, but I would imagine for a writer it's the same. You know, what it is you're writing. I mean, you, you you probably know as well as I do that you know you can you can get off at a job and you think oh this will be dead easy piece of cake you know uh, nice little doddle and then you 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 start on it and you suddenly find it's 
it's it's difficult. It's it's you know it's uh, something you know you you don't don't slip into it easily. You have to, a lot of decisions to make. You get it wrong before you get it right. All those kind of things can happen. Very much and so. Also, sorry. Very much so. Just, yeah. yeah. Also, you know, you can you can pick something up and think, oh gosh, and how how on earth am I going to do this? They've really blown it with the casting this time, and you find it actually it's like slipping on a you know slipping into a warm bath, lovely, um, and goes very easily and, and and well. So I think you you it's difficult to really make a judgment. I think it depends on the the particular project that you're embarked on at any particular time as to whether it comes easily or not. Mm. Well, this might make it easier, or you know, slightly rephrasing the question, which is your favourite? Um, I think at the moment I prefer I prefer writing at the moment because it's it's what I've been doing more of and what I've been enjoying. Um, and acting, you know, it, it just depends entirely on what the project is you're involved in. I mean, Poirot was obviously a joy to do, um, as was Sharp. Um, but, you know, there have been other things along the way, as again, I'm sure you, you're aware of, that uh, have been less comfortable to, to, be, to be in. So, um, I, th- I think, um, you know, it's, it's, you have to view things on a case-by-case basis, if I can put it like that. Sure, it's whatever you're working on at the time. Yeah. Now, I do want to talk about uh, some of your acting life, and a major show you were a part of that we've mentioned on and off throughout the interview was Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot. Now, you played Captain Hastings. How did you go about bringing the character to life based on what Agatha Christie had written in the novels? Well, it was a combination of what Agatha Christie had written in the novels and what the original writer Clive Exton wrote in the script. I think it's fair to say that Clive gave Hastings and indeed Inspector Jap and Miss Lemon a little more depth and a little more, um, well, I wouldn't say depth, uh, uh, gave them a slightly broader characters than Christie had in the books. With Hastings, for example, Hastings is very much, in the books, is very much a functionary. He's there to ask the right questions so that Poirot can elucidate the plot, <coughs> go, and, excuse me, go and do things um, at the same time as Poirot is investigating. Um, he's, he's, he's very much a, a functionary, although he does have a character. You know, he has his pipe and his sports jacket and, and all of that. Um, I think Clive Exton, the original writer or ad- adapter, of the, of the of the series, uh, gave Hastings much more humour than than Christie had, and um, more interests. You know, Hastings would have hobbies, or or um, you know, he, in one episode he's he's keen photographer. Uh, in another episode, he takes up meditation. Um, <laughs> these are th- these are things that didn't appear in in Christie's writing. Um, so I think I've got probably. It was probably a matter of reading the books, obviously, uh, first of all, and then <clears throat> actually reacting to the scripts that, that arrived um, from Clive. Mm. Now, I have uh, I have read, I think, all the Agatha Christie novels ever written, and I've seen all the Poirot's Bar Curtain, which I could not bring myself to do. Now, uh, was there a particularly memorable moment from filming Poirot you could share with our listeners? Well, he... There is a, a memorable moment, and it is actually it, it, in Curtain, which I, I know you haven't seen. I hope this won't spoil it for you if you do ever bring yourself to look at it. Um, it was, of course, really the death of Poirot. I mean, that, that was the culmination of, of, uh, of the whole thing, really. And, you know, 25 years off and on, although I did have a break uh, during the time when they were filming the books that, that Hastings didn't appear in. But when I went back at the end uh, to do Curtain, and 
but not quite witnessed, but very nearly, uh, you know, those last few mm. scenes where, where David Suchet was in bed, you know, very ill, near to death, and it was clear he was near to death. It was, uh, those were extremely emotional to play. Um, and, uh, of course, being David, you know, he didn't just, I mean, it's, it's common knowledge that he, he, he was in character all the time on the set. Uh, so with David, it wasn't a matter of, you know, talking about the weather or what we were doing at the weekend. And then suddenly they say, OK, everybody ready, turn over, action. And he goes into character. He's there. He's like that all the time, you know, like for the whole the whole day. Um, and uh, so it was being with a dying man um, and very moving uh, as such. It would have been. Did that seem like a fitting conclusion to the 25 years of work that had been put into the show? Very much so. Yes, I mean, I think for David, it was it was extremely emotional for him. Um, obviously, very you know, very 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 difficult to do in in in, in many ways um, because you know he'd been so involved in it for so long, mm-hmm. um, and it was coming to an end. And not only that, but he was dying. <laughs> yeah, it would have been quite emotional on set those couple of days. They were indeed. They were. David said a few words as well, you know, when he'd done the actual death, he said he thanked everybody for their hard work and their consideration, because people did, did you know, maintain an atmosphere of respect through, through, that, through those few days. So it was very different from, you know, other, other times on the set. It would have been. Now, we have also briefly mentioned Sharp, on which you were, you're in it. I think you first appeared in 1994, and your final appearance was in 2006. Is it challenging yeah. reprising a character so sporadically over such a long period of time? Well, not really. Um, particularly with Sharp, where, where, with Wellington, you know, where you've got, you've got. I mean, I wore the false nose, <laughs> and you know, the, the the you've got the look. You know, you sit in makeup, and on goes the nose, and then you know the hair gets done, and then you put on the costume. And, uh, you know, by the time you've kind of walked onto the set, you know, with your sword and, and or maybe got on the horse or whatever, you, you, you're you back into it, you know, pretty quickly. And again, you you know, you've got the script, so you know what you're there to do. Mm. It's not as if you walk on and you've got to sort of create Wellington out of nothing. You know, you know you're in a scene with Sharp where he's saying one thing, you're saying another. And so it, it's really quite easy to slip back into it. And you mentioned that you did some horse riding. Did you have to learn that in preparation for that role? <laughs> I've done a couple of parts on horseback um, over the years, and I'm by no means a, a good rider. But I, I could get away with it, look reasonably good up to a maybe a canter, you know. But of course, as soon as you you go into a long shot, you know, and there's Wellington galloping across the the, 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 the Spanish plains, uh, it's a stunt man, <laughs> it's a stunt double, who uh, makes you look fantastic. Everyone says, God, you're a great rider, aren't you? You say, yeah, yeah, well, you know, it's, it's just something I've always done. But in fact, of course, it's a, in, in, the, in the case of Sharp, it was these incredibly tough Russian stuntmen who, um, who took, took care of all the riding and, and, and some of the fighting as well. So uh, they make you look good. They do. Now, an iconic film you were involved in was the Harrison Ford thriller Patriot Games. How would you say is making a movie different to making TV? Um, not, not 
particularly different different it's it all comes down to the fact that you're playing a scene and there's a camera or cameras turning i mean nowadays in television it's it's two or three cameras and similarly on films with uh, because of the whole digital recording um change over to that i mean years ago it would be one camera possibly another one so you would you would be very much more focused on on playing for one camera uh, now you're, you're, you 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 don't really know what the shot is necessarily because it's going to be two or three cameras uh, in different places on the set um but it's essentially the same thing you know you're playing a scene um and it's being filmed mm. Uh, maybe you know the production values on a film are, are a bit bigger the crew would be would be probably usually bigger um but essentially you know you're either on location or in a studio and a film studio is not that different from a television studio and in fact in the case of Poirot we filmed it at Pinewood um some of the time and and Twickenham Studios all of which are film studios so um it, it's not really that different I wouldn't say would you say the atmosphere on set is different, I mean, especially with Patriot Games, where you had James L. Jones, Harrison Ford, and I believe Samuel L. Jackson was in that as well? I mean, that's got to create a bit of a yeah, that's buzz. Right. I, I, I think probably when you arrive and you meet them for the first time, you think, oh gosh, you know, this is James L. Jones, this is Samuel L. Jackson, you know. But by the time you've been on the set for an hour, you know, you're just chatting, you know, you're 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 just doing the job, and. Um, you know, they're, they're, in that particular case, they were all, you know, including Harrison, extremely affable people who, you know, we worked very happily together. And it was it was good fun and we had a laugh and, and you know, it's just business as usual, really. Mm, but it's good to hear that the stars are so down to earth. <laughs> so what would you say has been your favourite project to work on as an actor? My favourite project? Um... It's going back a bit to the mid-80s, but there was a series called Edge of Darkness with um, the late Bob Peck playing the lead. It was, a, it was a British television, it was a BBC television series about um, the nuclear industry and kind of paranoia and, and conspiracy within, within that industry. And it was one of those things. It became it became very successful in 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 in, in, in England at least in the, in the UK and I think to an extent in America. And it was it, it was it's it's a it's a great memory because it was something that um, wasn't a, a particularly wasn't thought of as a particularly big production. You know when it started, mm. and there was there was a sense that built through it that we were really doing something you know that was really worthwhile and good. And, um, you know, it did touch a nerve in, in terms of nuclear weaponry and, and you know, the, the whole sort of secrecy involved in that world. And so I believed in it, well, I think we all believed in it from a kind of ideological point of view and also um, felt that, you know, we were, we were creating something. Because it, when it started, uh, it wasn't fully written. We'd only got about maybe four, three or four of the... Of the eight or nine scripts uh, that, that, that were involved. Um, so it, we went into an unknown quantity, and I mean, a bit of an act of leap of faith, really, and it, and it turned out to be a really, really valuable and worthwhile piece of work. That is good to hear. So when you spoke of memories then. What would you say has been the most memorable experience in your career so far? Memorable experience? Um, well, actually, I mentioned it, I think, before, a, a play called Teeth and Smiles at the Royal Court, where I, which is a play about a rock band with Helen Mirren playing the leading role, and Jack Shepard. Um, and it was a, a play about a rock band arriving at the Mayball in Cambridge. And uh, 
it was inc an incredibly happy experience. Um, we put the play on at the Royal Court. Helen was a great kind of leading lady, you know, leader of the company. She's a you know wonderful person to work with, and we we just really enjoyed doing the play. It was it was rock and roll, you know. It was it was really great fun to do, and it was a wonderful script, very very funny, and the music was great and, and all of that. And we put it on, it went on at the Royal Court, and it was a success. And you know, it transferred to the West End, and it was that that buzz of being in a successful play which you really enjoyed doing, and the company got on incredibly well together. We used to go out, you know, and eat every just about every night after the show and um so it was like it was it was a really really happy experience and that, that's the one really one that i that i treasure as a memory mm, it certainly sounds like a memory you would treasure mm. now how do you think the arts industry has changed since you started working in it uh well i think i think television is probably quite different um i mean i mentioned edge of darkness where we went it went into production uh, with maybe half of it written um, and the rest, you know, kind of in the pipeline. Um, I doubt very much if that could happen today. I mean, pr product programs are very much more sort of buttoned down before the, <clears throat> before the first camera turns. Um, I think the role of producers is far more, um, far more powerful uh, today than it, than, it, than it was certainly when I started. Um, so I think I think television has probably got a great more a great deal more kind of um, can I call it middle management involved. <laughs> I, think so. I think so. Um, then, <laughs> or, or perhaps we would just call it management. I suppose much more much more management. Yeah, there is. Uh, yeah. Mm. The theatre, I, I think, probably remains pretty much the same as it always was. Um, you know, you're just putting on a play, as you are at the moment, and uh, hoping hoping it goes well. Thank you. Yeah, it's what it's what all actors do: sit there with their fingers crossed until curtain. <laughs> yes. Now, uh, looking looking forward, what can you see yourself doing more of, acting or writing? Well, um, I I would hope I can do some more writing. You know, assuming that that people enjoy this this book, Harm. I mean, I've got a, a, a sequel. Uh, about half the first draft about half written um, with the same character if that if that had any kind of legs at all I'd be I'd be delighted and uh, as you all know as an actor it's completely out of my hands um, <laughs> I mean I'm tomorrow doing a, <clears throat> a recording of uh, a Doctor Who audio CDs for a company called Big Finish um, uh, which is uh, which are Doctor Who new Doctor Who stories with the original uh, cast, you know, the original Doctors. This one tomorrow is with Sylvester McCoy. Um, they also do Peter Davidson um, and all the other famous Doctors. Um, but uh, you know that's a matter of uh, as you know waiting for the phone to ring. You know, some, somebody will offer you ask you to come and do something or not. <laughs> There's not a lot you can do about it either way. You're right. The truth of the industry. Yeah. Now, uh, now, finally, what advice would you offer to anyone looking to work in the performing arts? Uh, I think you said it. You just keep your fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think there's anything. I mean, you, you know, you train or you don't. You know, some people benefit extremely from training. Other people, uh, you know, don't train and go on to have extremely successful careers. I think it's very difficult to be prescriptive about how, how to foster um, 
your your talent or, or you know I, I think you you're you're at the you're at the nature you're at the at the mercy of happenstance. I mean, this luck plays a heck of a lot of big uh, part in in how careers develop. Um, I think you just you know if it if it if you if you're keen on training then then try and train you know audition for drama schools if you're if you're more the kind of person who wants to just say okay let's just put this play on in a room above a pub and you know just go out and do do your thing then then do that just be guided by your own instinct i think Mm. and hope for the best that's right well thank you for your wise words and harm is released on the 1st of july on amazon.com that's correct. Thank you very much indeed, Benjamin. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And you. That was my chat with Hugh Fraser and the link to Amazon.com where you can buy his book for uh, any digital device or in paperback is in the show notes below. Now, unfortunately, I don't have any new DVDs to review as yet, but in the second July one, I'll have some releases from both Madman and Roadshow Entertainment. But I did recently, as last night actually, get to check out Marvel's latest flick, Ant-Man. Now, it is a very enjoyable film. It's a lot of fun. It's a, it's a very caper-style uh, comedy. And it does have some quite serious emotional uh, moments as well. Paul Rudd has done a great job with the character. I mean, the premise itself, uh, a man who finds a suit and he can shrink, is a little bit uh, far-fetched, especially even you know for a superhero movie. But it is a lot of fun. It's a movie the whole family can enjoy. I'm giving that one three and a half stars, and I do encourage you to stay right till the end. There's there's two post-credit scenes, and one of them is probably one of the most important parts of the film. So stay all the way to the end with that one. And the other film I uh, got to check out a couple of weeks back was Terminator Genesis. Now, this film proves that the Terminator franchise nearly 30 years later is still just as strong as it was then. This film is, I think, probably equally as good as the very first one. It's one of the better action sci-fi films I've seen for the whole year, and I do strongly encourage you to check that out. That one has four stars, and the full reviews are always available to read on the website. I'll be back with another interview later in the month. I've been your host, Benjamin Mamakay. See you next time.